0: Welcome to Finding Medina, Episode 7, The Free and Independent State of Texas. I'm Brandon Seal. On April 6th, 1813, just five days after capturing San Antonio, a revolutionary junta led by Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara declared Texas's independence from Spain. Nos el pueblo de la provincia de Texas. The declaration begins, quote, "...swearing before the Supreme Judge of the universe the rightness of our intentions, declare that the chains that have held us under the domination of European Spain are forever dissolved, that we are free and independent, that we have the right to establish our own government, and that henceforth all legitimate authority shall arise from the people to whom alone this right belongs, that from now on and forever... We shall be free of any duty or obligation whatsoever to any foreign power. End quote. And this wasn't just an aspirational statement, it was a more or less accurate assessment of the current situation. Following the Battle of Rocío the week prior, as Julia Garrett notes in her 1939 book, Green Flag Over Texas, Texas became the first of Spain's colonies to quote, achieve complete independence from Spain. It was also the first to establish a separate government without an opposing force in her environs, and that during April of 1813, every Spanish official had been removed. Quote. The April 6, 1813, Declaration of Independence appointed Senor Don Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara as a sort of regent, a position sometimes described as president protector, charged with naming seven men to a revolutionary junta. That would establish the new state's government. He chose seven San Antonians with impeccable Canary Island pedigrees and equally impeccable revolutionary credentials, three arrochas and four delgados. This group, along with many of the dozen or so who had followed Gutierrez de Lara since 1811 when he'd gotten his start as a revolutionary on the Rio Grande, set to work then on a new constitution, which they published 11 days later on April 17th 1813. Texas's first Declaration of Independence and first Constitution are truly underappreciated documents, probably because they're so hard to categorize neatly. At least two American historians I've read describe them as descending from the Spanish tradition, yet I've also read a Mexican historian who categorized them as distinctly North American. In reality, they're both employing the Anglo-American language of liberty within a Hispanic legal tradition to call for a hybrid form of representative government. They're profoundly authentic, autochthonous documents arising from the place in which they're written. They articulate grievances that Tejanos had been voicing for generations and would continue to voice well into the events of 1835-36, for example, general neglect by government officials, Suppression of trade, arbitrary enforcement of laws, etc., etc., all the kinds of things that make people want to revolt against distant foreign masters. Yet the two documents also show an awareness of different political traditions, particularly those of their North American neighbors. The opening paragraph of the 1813 Declaration, which I read above, should have recalled for you the openings of the American Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Another example would be the way that the 1813 Declaration seems to draw on Anglo-American notions of natural law, appealing to derecho natural three different times, which is something that neither the Spanish nor the Mexican founding documents do. Spanish and Mexican documents are much more likely to refer to human rights or the rights of man, something the 1813 Texas Declaration also does, albeit only once. Yet, if anyone reading the 1813 Texas Declaration of Independence thought that Gutierrez de Lara was about to bring Texas into the American fold, they were quickly disabused of that notion. The last line of that opening paragraph that I just quoted plainly affirms that Texas is quote, free of any obligation to any foreign power. End quote. Absueltos de deber y obligación a todo poder extranjero. And the document ends, too, with an unequivocal declaration of alignment with Mexico and an aspiration for Texas to lead a, quote, rebirth of the Mexican people, taking in our own hands the reins of our government, end quote, a fitting horse-based metaphor for our horse-crazed Tejanos to use. The 1813 Texas Constitution is similarly unpretentious and succinct. It creates a familiar three-branch structure of government, with certain checks and balances between the respective branches. It explicitly recognizes certain inalienable civil rights, such as a prohibition against unlawful takings of property, and the guarantee of a trial for all men accused of crimes. The one thing that the 1813 Texas Constitution was not, however, was democratic. In a nod toward representativeness, Gutierrez de Lara swapped in a couple of Americans into his revolutionary junta, but the manner of selecting future members of this junta was left undefined, as was the term of these initial members. And in rather circular fashion, it then fell to the junta to elect the governor, and they, unsurprisingly, elected Gutierrez de Lara. Other communities in Texas were provided with even less self-rule the 1813 Texas Constitution actually called for each town in the state to be governed by a military officer appointed by the governor. If we're being fair, we should acknowledge that this document was, first and foremost, a wartime constitution, drafted in a hurry and under trying circumstances. No one at the time seemed unduly concerned by its obvious shortcomings. Indeed, The most pressing issue for most of the men milling about San Antonio in April of 1813 was making sure that they got the $40 a month and 4,000 acres of land that Gutierrez de Lara had promised them. Accordingly, Gutierrez de Lara, in the ruling junta, made sure to include this guarantee in the last article of this first Constitution of Texas. This need to constitutionally guarantee that the soldiers in his army would get paid was really a sign of the precariousness of Gutierrez de Lara's position at this moment. Just a few days prior, he had angered many of his volunteers when he placed former Royalist Governor Manuel Salcedo and 12 of his officers on trial for treason, which had violated some of the volunteers' understanding of the conditions under which the Spanish Royalists had surrendered. When it became clear that they couldn't stop the trial, the ever-procedural American volunteers tried to insist on appointing defense counsel, but they were overruled by Gutierrez de Lara. The subsequent outcome of the trial was never really in doubt then, and the Spanish royalists found themselves sentenced to death less than 24 hours after they had surrendered. Many of Gutierrez de Lara's volunteers objected again, more loudly than the first time, and threatened to leave his command. At this point, the uproar was too much for Gutierrez de Lara to ignore. He agreed to commute the Royalist sentences to exile. He ordered them march to Matagorda Bay for passage back to Havana. Or was it New Orleans? New Spain, maybe. The varying destinations passed down to us in different accounts point to the larger deception that was underway. The search for the Battle of Medina made me buy a hay farm. Here's how it happened. Recall that in the previous episode, our friend Fred Martinez had pointed us to the low bridge in La Soya, Texas, as a place where rusting Spanish arms were rumored to have been found in the 1950s. The low bridge today sits a few hundred yards downhill and downstream of El Carmen Church, the claimed burial site. Of some of the Battle of Medina dead. And recall that the Low Bridge crosses the Medina River alongside a lovely little hay farm that Alberto and I flew over back in episode 5. One day, after kicking around the general area of the battlefield with San Antonio City archaeologist Kay Hines, she decided to head back through La Soya to try to find an old Spanish blaze in a tree, that is, a mark left behind in colonial times. For Travelers to use to measure distance or to mark forks in the road on the way, she stopped and sent me a picture from in front of that lovely little hay farm. You may already be tired of hearing me use this lovely little epithet for this lovely little hay farm, but it really is quite pretty after passing through the thick Encinal de Medina and the brush that has taken over the South Texas prairie around it just as you cross the Medina River, you emerge into this little bowl. 60 acres of gently rolling hay fields dotted with centuries-old pecan trees. And this hay farm sat right on Bruce Moses's Laredo Road, at one of maybe two spots on the Medina River, according to our mysterious contributor Joseph Bear, where wheeled traffic could have crossed. This meant that it could have been the Republican campsite the night before the battle. Or maybe the Royalist campsite immediately following the battle. When actually... If you believe participant Carlos Beltrán's battle account, it might even have been where the battle started. Beltrán describes the mounted contingents of the Republican army staged at a spot just north of the Medina River, behind three easily crossable fords. It stands to reason that this Losoya crossing could have been one of them. At the first signs of battle, which in Beltrán's account almost sounds like it starts on the river bank... The mounted Republicans go charging across. And by the way, I can't believe I've gotten this far into this series without mentioning Carlos Beltran. Carlos, born Charles Beltran in West Virginia, had come to San Antonio in 1807, fallen in love with it, learned the language, and would live the rest of his life in Mexico. During the Battle of Medina, he actually fought with the mounted Tejano units, not the American Volunteers though he moved in and out of their camps and so was able to give us perspectives from the various different units of the Republican army. Beltran's account is posted back on our Episode 4 page at the Revard Report, and if you're only going to read one of these primary Republican sources, read Beltran's. Given the ambiguities that we kept running into during our archival research, I had started thinking about our project to find the Medina battlefield in probabilistic terms. That is, even if we couldn't be certain about some facts, we could at least try to compare different pieces of information and identify where they overlapped, and maybe those overlaps could tell us something more important than the account's other, more minor contradictions. And a lot of data points were overlapping at this lovely little hay farm on the Medina River. And further, the picture that Kay Hines sent me of the lovely little hay farm showed that it now had a for sale sign in front of it, and the property actually only got more interesting the more I learned about it. It had originally been patented to José Antonio Garza, the designer of the Lone Star of Texas. And go back to episode twelve of season one of this podcast if you want to learn about that. So, sitting before us was this historic property that may have been the spot on which the Republican and or Royalist armies had camped in the days surrounding the Battle of Medina, how could I pass this up? I, of course, did then what any motivated Battle of Medina searcher would have done. I called up the number on the for sale sign, and I made an offer. And the owners, somewhat to my surprise, accepted. My colleagues on the Battle of Medina research team were ecstatic. Finally the search was getting real, even if our first dig was going to be based on some pretty attenuated evidence. But I called up Kay Hines anyway, and I called up my SWCA research buddy, Zach Overfield, and with a little persistence and the promise of free barbecue, we assembled a team of archaeological field techs and trusted metal detectorists. We went out to the hay farm on December 29, 2018, possibly the coldest day of the year, it turned out, Sixty acres is still a lot of ground for only a half-dozen people to cover, so we figured that we had to be pretty methodical about this. Probabilistic, if you will. We defined a grid that our metal detectorists would walk. Behind the detectorists, the rest of us would follow, shovels in hand, ready to dig. Hits would be marked, dug up, examined, and then we'd move on to the next. Check out a video that I've posted on our Revard Report webpage of Zach Overfield explaining our methodology. Especially listen to the last part. People need to understand this. Finding a historical artifact on your property does not give anyone, including the government, any rights to come onto your property or even to take that artifact. Both the artifact and the land remain entirely your property to do whatever you want with it. This is one of the most difficult things to convince people of when asking for permission to conduct surveys on their property, so I want to make sure I push this message out there. Despite my excitement when we were beginning the metal detecting surveys, I had been warned by Kay and Zach to moderate my expectations. Expect to find far more beer cans and bottle tops than buttons and bullets, they told me. Then, like 20 feet into walking our first line, one of our metal detectorists, on Crumley, got a hit. Our volunteer archaeological techs, David and Rachel, shuffled over and started digging. As the hole was dug, Larry moved in with his handheld detecting unit to more precisely identify the object's location in the hole. He then pulled out a spade and began carefully scraping away the dirt. He felt something picked at the dirt around it with his finger, then pulled up a square nail. Kay Hines rushed over to look at it. You can see the picture on the Revard Report webpage. Unlike modern wire nails, this nail appeared to have been forged, suggesting it was old, maybe 19th century old. Not Battle of Medina old, Kay concluded, but it was still something, and it was encouraging. Sadly, it was the most luck we'd have all morning. Whoever had camped on this lovely little hay farm hadn't even drank their share of beer. We didn't even find a single beer can or bottle top. We kept on trying, however. Zack went down to the riverbank and augured out a few ten-foot-deep holes, hoping to maybe come across a layer of debris or evidence of some other historical activity. Our metal detectorists, meanwhile, Larry and Crumley and Bill Telford, kept working our grid— while I followed them around distracting them with my questions about what other types of artifacts they had found on other projects. It turned out that they had long been involved also in searching for the exact location of the Battle of Rocio, which they believed they were close to finding based on a few bullets and a three-inch cannonball that they had dug up. And yet that kind of luck continued to elude us well into the afternoon. I had brought my six-year-old son, Memel, along with me for the day because I felt like searching for buried treasure brings out the inner six-year-old boy in all of us. He was initially fired up at the prospect of finding some sort of buried treasure, but by the late afternoon, he, like the rest of us, had grown pretty despondent. In an effort to keep him entertained, I decided to put him to work. We rigged up one of the metal detectors to his arm, and showed him how to use it. We pointed him on a line across the base of a hill and told him to get to work. Less than ten feet in, he got a hit. At the time, we figured he had just scanned his boot or something, but we went over to see what it was. Where'd you get the hit, we asked. He swept the machine in front of him. Beep. We told him to sweep it over again. Beep, beep, beep. It was a solid hit. Huh. And it was long, like 18 inches long or so. Interesting. We pulled out our shovels and started digging, carefully, but excitedly. About six inches down, we hit something. We pulled out the handheld detector to try to better identify the object. Sure enough, it was long and bar-shaped, not more than one inch in diameter or so, with maybe a bend on one end. I tried not to think about rusting Spanish arms, but of course I couldn't help it. We dug more, around the beeps, careful not to get too close lest we damage the object. We eventually got a spade under it, and then a hand on it, and then a small bit of it peeked through the dirt. By this point, I'm down on all fours, digging on my knees like an infantryman trying to scrape out a foxhole. It was something metallic. Ferris, you could tell from the rust. It was a little skinnier than you would have expected for a gun barrel, but it was hard to tell what else it could be. We kept digging, scraping, pulling gently, digging some more, until finally, at last, the object emerged. It was the most perfectly aged 13 inch tire iron you had ever seen. As the sun set, and once I had stopped weeping, Zach came over and tried to console me. The rusting Spanish arms may still be there somewhere, he said, underneath the 95% of the property that we weren't able to survey in our brief time that day. And as the new owner of this hay farm, I had a lifetime to keep searching for them. Yet even then, he pointed out, finding rusted Spanish arms might not tell us as much as I wanted it to. Spanish arms were marching up and down this road for three centuries. So even if you found some, you'd be hard-pressed to make them tell you anything definitive about the Battle of Medina in 1813. Archaeology typically confirms very little, he reminded me. I responded that when it came to the Battle of Medina, it seemed that archaeology finds very little too. It's funny you say that, he shot back to me. Someone actually had found something not even three miles north of where we were standing just then. Something that was probably from the Battle of Medina, he said. And how do you know it was from the Battle of Medina? I asked him. Again, he responded, that archaeology alone couldn't really say for sure. But what conclusion would you draw, he asked me, if you found the body of a twenty-something-year-old man along the main road to and from the area of the battle, wearing buttons from around 1813, with cannon shot in his neck. On April 1st, 1813, for the second time in two years, Spanish Governor Manuel Salcedo found himself marching out of San Antonio in chains. A 60-man escort of Republicans including Captain Antonio Delgado and Jose Francisco Ruiz, guided the former governor and twelve of his officers southeast along the road to Goliad and Matagorda Bay, where they were supposed to be packed off into exile, they had been told. Salcedo surely detected more than a little smugness in his captors' faces as they reveled in their newfound superiority over the man who had so terrorized their town, the man who thought he had ended Father Hidalgo's revolt. Two years ago. Yet even now, Salcedo still apparently failed to comprehend the depth of the enmity he had engendered amongst his opponents over the last couple years. When the group stopped at the spot where the Battle of Rocío had been fought just a few days before, Governor Salcedo must have grown suspicious. He didn't have long to ponder his plight, however. He and the other prisoners were promptly yanked down from their mounts stripped of their clothes, and tied to nearby trees. Carlos Beltran describes what happened next. Quote, Realizing that their end was near, these unhappy men begged to be spared until a priest might be brought from town to administer the last rites of the church. But this was refused. You sent my father into eternity, denying him the consolation of religion in his last extremity. End quote. Said Captain Antonio Delgado. At this point, the other men in the escort pulled out their knives and began to wet their blades on the soles of their shoes. There could be no mistake what they intended to do. Here's Beltran again, The lieutenant governor exhorted his companions in misfortune to face the ordeal like men and to die like true soldiers, loyal, even in death to their masters, the king. Governor Salcedo, meanwhile, begged to be permitted to die like a soldier. He asked to be shot, and for reasons that will never be known, his request was granted. He was the first to be executed, and then, at a signal given by Delgado, the men chosen for the murderous task advanced, and with gleaming knives, cut the throats of the remaining men. After killing the Royalists, Gachupines, the Republicans would have called these Spaniards, the men in the escort then mutilated their corpses in gruesome frontier fashion and left their bloody, dismembered bodies for the wild animals to finish off. The execution of Governor Salcedo and his officers is indefensible by any measure. It fits, however, the pattern of the war of Mexican independence and even has a certain barbaric logic to it if you recall the deliberately cruel and unusual executions that Governor Salcedo had carried out in San Antonio over the previous years. Many of Gutierrez de Lara's non-San Antonio volunteers lacked this context, however, and so Captain Antonio Delgado returned the next morning to outrage in the streets of San Antonio. A mob of American volunteers gathered around him and took him into custody. They resolved to try him and Gutierrez de Lara for the execution of the Spaniards now, whom they believed had surrendered with promises of safe conduct. The trials of Delgado and Gutierrez de Lara began immediately. Delgado decided to conduct his own defense, and so rose to speak. He began by reminding the court, the volunteers gathered around him, Tejano, Native American, and Anglo-American, of the history that had brought things to this point. For one hundred years, the citizens of Texas had been neglected by their own king. For one hundred years, they had been exploited by a system meant to enrich Spaniards at their expense. He reminded them of what had started this whole revolt two and a half years prior, namely, the grito of a small-town cleric in Dolores, Guanajuato, in his heroic march to the gates of Mexico City, followed by his betrayal, his ambush, and his execution. This was a story that Antonio Delgado, and presumably many others in San Antonio, had lived personally. Here are Delgado's words, Quote, My father was a patriot. He fought the Gachupin under Hidalgo. Here in San Antonio, he was betrayed into the hands of Governor Salcedo, by whom he was cruelly put to death, and his venerable head, my father's head, was hoisted upon a pole, a horrible sight which all you gallant Americans witnessed when you entered the city. I shall not seek your clemency by saying that I acted under orders of my superiors. Far from it. I would rather have you consider that I acted under my own volition. I am not a penitent. I have no regrets over the execution of the men who have been a scourge to my race and country. As a son, No less dutiful to his parent than loyal to his country, I have avenged the murder of my venerated father. If there is an American present who would have done less, let him rise up and pronounce me guilty. Delgado was acquitted. At that point, there wasn't really any need to go forward with Gutierrez de Lara's trial. And so we hear no more about it, no evidence for or against his role in the executions. And yet, despite Gutierrez de Lara's later condemnation of the, quote, horrific and detestable throat slittings, quote, his protestations ring a little hollow. If he had been that serious about protecting the lives of the royalist officers, he wouldn't have entrusted them to the son of a man who had been very publicly and very brutally executed by Governor Salcedo six months before. Even though Delgado was acquitted, and Gutierrez de Lara never convicted of anything, there was still substantial damage control for Gutierrez de Lara and his allies to manage. Miguel Menchaca, James Gaines, and perhaps Carlos Beltran tried to explain the context of the executions to the Americans, but these volunteers' faith in Gutierrez de Lara seems to have been severely shaken. Perhaps, too, they had been swayed by a recently begun smear campaign conducted by envious rivals back in the United States who eyed Gutierrez de Lara's success as a threat to whatever personal ambitions they had for Texas. Whatever the reason, following the trials, Gutierrez de Lara was deposed as commander-in-chief of the Republican Army of the North in favor of American Colonel Reuben Ross, who we met in the previous episode as the victor of a mounted Homeric duel at the opening of the Battle of Rosillo, The execution of the Spaniards, the trials of Delgado and Gutierrez de Lara, and the subsequent months of inactivity following the Battle of Rosillo in March of 1813, frayed ethnic relations within the Republican Army of the North. Many Americans still stewed over the execution of the Royalist officers, and some left, reducing their numbers to less than a third of the army. Tejanos, meanwhile, looked askance as those Americans who remained, quote, gave themselves up largely to every form of dissipation, cards, horses, wine, and women, end quote. Despite Miguel Menchaca's continuing efforts to mediate between the distrustful factions, some Americans became convinced that the Tejanos were now conspiring to turn them over to the Spaniards. Unbeknownst to them, the Spanish commander of the force marching towards them, our old impulsive and flip-flopping friend, Colonel Ignacio Elizondo, actually was intriguing with diplomats in the United States to possibly come over to the Republican cause, efforts which U.S. diplomats rebuffed, even as Elizondo was being intrigued upon by Gutierrez de Lara to also come over to the Republican cause, efforts which Elizondo rebuffed. If only cross-cultural dealings were as easy as Coke commercials make them out to be. Trust in a cross-cultural setting goes against everything in our tribal nature, especially when money, life, and national honor are at stake. I've spent the majority of my professional career working in foreign countries, and I can tell you that misunderstandings are always magnified in such a context. Different communication styles are interpreted as dishonesty. Ignorance of cultural courtesies gives offense where none was intended. And simple acts of incompetence are attributed to malice. All of this played into the hands of the men marching up the Camino Real, of course. But it also played into the hands of a schemer, newly arrived in Louisiana, that purported revolutionary of great talents as Gutierrez de Lara himself had described him a year and a half earlier, when they had met in Philadelphia. Cuban-born Spaniard and fair-weather Republican José Álvarez de Toledo had actually spent most of the time since his meeting with Gutierrez de Lara conspiring to have Gutierrez de Lara removed from the command of the army that he had led to such surprising success. Upon hearing of the execution of the royalist officers, Toledo. Redoubled his efforts to undermine Gutierrez de Lara. Despite all the recent drama in San Antonio, Gutierrez de Lara's battlefield record stood as a formidable impediment to anyone else wishing to make themselves the leader of this revolt. Toledo knew that he needed to strike a blow soon. On the next episode of Finding Medina. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this series left a review, it would launch these important historical events to the top of the charts. Another postscript here. The other day, podcast listener Stephen Countryman was kind enough to forward me an article from the San Antonio Express News from December 30th, 1934. It seems that around that time, A rancher near the town of Christine in Atascosa County had been digging out a tank on his property when suddenly a skull came rolling out of the dirt. By the time this rancher was done digging, 68 more bodies had been uncovered in the spot that became known as Dead Man's Tank. Now I should go ahead and tell you that Christine is south of Pleasanton, well south of the area that we've been looking in. It seems unlikely then that these bodies would be associated with the battle. But it's a strange coincidence, isn't it? For there to be an unrelated mass grave within 25 miles of the presumed battle site? When I heard about this, I immediately called San Antonio City archeologist Kay Hines, who just retired by the way. You can find a picture of me and her at her retirement party on the Rivard Report webpage. Kay is from Atascosa County, knows the area well and has worked on the site despite rumors of Spanish-style structures and perhaps buttons on some of the bodies, the actual evidence seemed much more suggestive of an archaic or late prehistoric Native American burial ground. Of course, we can't be sure of this. The bodies have disappeared. Some say they went to the Witte Museum, but the Witte has no record of it. Some say they went to Tarl, the Texas Archaeological Research Library in Austin, and yet they have nothing either. This part of the world seems to swallow artifacts. And so Dead Man's tank, it appears, won't give up its secrets any more easily than the battlefield of Medina. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend George Gaetan for letting us use his music on this series. You can find out more about him at georgegaetan.tripod.com. Thanks to my SWCA environmental research buddies, Crystal Allgood, Rob Lakowitz, and Zachary Overfield, as well as to San Antonio City archaeologist Kay Hines. Thanks to Brian Stauffer, our unofficial old Spanish document transcriber, to Samantha Alanis, our cartographer-in-chief, to Cesar Gutierrez, our unofficial Archivo General de la Nación researcher, and to UTSA's Dean of Libraries, Dean Hendricks, our unofficial all-other document finder. And for more information about our podcasts and other projects check out www.brandonseal.com.